Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Tish Vincent. And I'm Joanne Hathaway. We're very pleased to have Baron Henley, attorney and legal technologist with Affinity Consulting, join us today as our podcast guest to talk about tech competency, security fundamentals. We're returning to the topic of tech competency again with Baron Henley, who you heard in our previous episode. If you haven't heard Barron's first episode with us, we encourage you to listen. Michigan has now become the 37th state to adopt the ethical duty of technology competence to be effective January 1st of 2020. So Barron, would you share some information about yourself with our listeners? Uh, Sure. I'm one of the founding partners of Affinity Consulting. We automate and streamline law practices, private and public and in-house, using you know, we fix processes and apply technology and and try to help them build culture that will propel them forward and make them successful. That's our job. Very interesting. I'm glad you're joining us today. I've heard lawyers say that it used to be a lot easier to protect confidential client information. What factors do you think are contributing to that? Well, back in the day, um, when I was your age, <laughs> we, everything was paper. <laughs> And now, hardly any of it is. Um, you know, it's it's pretty easy to protect and and uh, you know secure ele- uh, analog data. You know, put it in a filing cabinet and lock it, and you're done. And if you can get people not to gossip and engage in quote shop talk in public, then you've covered all the bases. But as anyone knows who reads any newspapers or consumes media, the electronic data is much harder to, to protect and 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 keep under wraps. And the, and the problem is, like, I, there's a lot of folks who didn't really like this development, but very little can be done about it. I mean, email has just exploded. Everybody wants to communicate via email, hard to keep track of. Um, and now text messages, we get lots of calls. And Joanne, I'm sure you hear the same thing. All my clients want to text message me. What do I do about that? Well, you tell them no, but if that doesn't work, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you're going to have to figure out some way to to get control of that and make copies of it and store it and put it someplace, not in your phone. Um, and then scanners became, in the intervening years, scanners became, you know, they're everywhere, cheap, they're fast. So previously, law offices generally had hundreds of thousands of word processing files they couldn't readily find. And then they started scanning PDFs like crazy, uh, adding hundreds of thousands of additional files on top of the ones they already couldn't <laughs> find. And, you know, it's a lot of times, I think it's normal, I'm sure you encounter this, where you go into an office and they're scanning everything, but they're still using the paper file as well. So they have, they have two filing systems and they've got, you know, they're trying to do a complete electronic filing system, but they're not actually relying on it because they're not, maybe they don't have confidence it contains everything or whatever the issue is, but, or they might lose access to it. Anyway, there's just people are being overrun with electronic files. And then, of course, if you need during the discovery process, most of that's going to be electronic today. And then, of course, a lot of jurisdictions have gone to electronic case filing. So now, you know, when I used to like print off an original and three copies of a pleading and walk over to the clerk's office and, 
give them the original and get three time stamped copies back and walk back to my office. That's a thing of the past. Uh, it all is done electronically. Um, all the forms we fill out, pretty much electronic, either web forms or PDFs. And then, you know, if, if you're a lawyer and you ask your client, you know, if I'm a, let's say I'm a state planning lawyer and I ask my client for their tax returns, I'm probably going to get those as PDFs, you know, they're going to come electronically. So even if you wish you didn't have to deal with any of that electronic stuff, unless you print everything and destroy it instantly when it comes into your office, you're going to have to deal with a lot of electronic data. And unfortunately, or fortunately, the ethics rules require that we protect it, even though this is much more difficult to protect. Really, I guess that's the subject of this is what about the ethics rules and what can we do? And that's what we'll talk about. So many states have adopted rule changes related to technology and security in recent years. What has Michigan done thus far? Well, as you mentioned, as of January 1st, 2020, they will now have a new phrase in the comment for uh, the maintaining competence comment in Rule 1.1 and specifically adding the text, including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. So the whole thing reads, um, to maintain the requisite knowledge and skill, a lawyer should keep abreast of changes of law and its practice, including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology, comma, and then it goes back to the rest of the old comment, engaging in, engage in continuing study and education and blah, blah, blah. But the big thing there was including the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. Now, interestingly, um, because I teach a lot of ethics classes in a lot of states, so I spend an inordinate amount of time reading ethics rules. It's really unpleasant <laughs> way to spend your time. But like so, somebody's so, doing it. <laughs> yeah. So so like the ABA model rule has a one point six E, which has this additional provision. Um, a lawyer shall make reasonable efforts to prevent the inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure of information relating to the representation of a client. Now, I know Ohio and many, many, many states have adopted that, but Michigan is not. So Michigan doesn't say anything about reasonable efforts. And I, I don't know how it's gonna, I don't know how Michigan can remain silent as to what standard is gonna be applied to lawyers when it comes to protecting client data. But most states have now addressed that. And that's part of the ABA model rule changes that occurred at the same time as the one I just read in rule 1.1. But for some reason, um, Michigan hasn't adopted that. So most of the other states have two additional comments as well that explain, because when you read that, a lawyer shall make reasonable efforts. And of course, that makes everybody go, what exactly do, must I do to ha have used reasonable efforts? And the, they have comments that explain it. And basically, there's a test. And I'm, I want to explain this because I think ultimately, if there were a problem, I suspect that if there were an ethics violation, they're going to end up looking at the same test since all the states are doing it, except for maybe Michigan and a few others. Um, but it says, it says basically to determine if you made reasonable efforts, you look at a, a couple of things, the sensitivity of the information, the likelihood of disclosure, the cost and difficulty of implementing safeguards. And then there's another important part of that comment says clients can ask you to do more than required by the rule. And then there's a second comment that usually goes along with that section, and, it's, and it begins, when transmitting a communication that includes confidential client data, the lawyer has to use reasonable precautions to prevent that from falling into the hands of unintended recipients. And it says you don't have to do anything special if the method of communication affords a reasonable expectation of privacy, but 
special circumstances sh could, should warrant uh, or could warrant special precautions. And they have another little mini test. You have to look at the sensitivity information and whether it's already protected by law or contract. That's really valuable guidance for lawyers. And I think in states where they've passed that, they say, okay, what do I have to do to do this? I feel like this is a, a, an achievable goal, and it certainly is, and it doesn't have to be super expensive or anything. But I think that if I'm a Michigan lawyer and I'm aware of all the other states having adopted these things, I should reasonably expect that that's going to happen in Michigan at some point. And regardless of whether or not there's an ethical requirement, it makes business sense to do it in, in this current climate where you know, if I if I suffer a big data breach and it becomes public or I have to disclose it under Michigan's breach disclosure laws, I mean, that could sink my whole firm. I mean, this is I mean, the, the, the consequences are severe if I don't do this right. And so, you know, we get a lot of calls about, well, what am I what should I do about th these issues and how do I protect m myself? But I think ultimately that regardless of what state you're in. The test today is you cannot disclaim responsibility for understanding how to use the technology tools necessary to do your job. Um, and if you're not the one that does it, then you just need to make sure the people doing it are doing it correctly and that they have the tools that they need to do it correctly. Um, otherwise, I think you're leaving yourself wide open and, and it's, uh, it is easy. And that's, you know, I have some recommendations that I, you know, we try to give to people and I should, I should point out that like we don't sell security anything and and I don't hold myself out as a security expert but we've gone through this whole thing ourselves you know we're not huge we have 52 employees but there's you know there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people and there's a lot of electronic data and almost all the data that we possess is law firm data <laughs> so <laughs> we get it you know we actually feel like we have a fiduciary responsibility to protect it just like lawyers do and obviously many of us are lawyers so um, we've kind of been through that whole exercise and found a lot of really great things that are easy to do that can, you can use to protect yourself and your client's data. So what recommendations do you have for Michigan lawyers as it relates to keeping this information secure? Well, you know, the first one is I think you need to talk to your clients about this at the engagement stage. And I, I was just in uh, Connecticut. I just did a CLE in Connecticut in, in, uh, in Hartford. And they, a guy came up to me and he was like, he was just complaining about, you know, email encryption. He's like, and I'm like, what? He's, my clients won't use it. Like I tell them I am obliged because Connecticut has adopted the rule changes that I previously mentioned. And he felt, I think, validly that if he's going to email confidential information that he should use email encryption. And he's like, I get all this pushback from my clients. You're like, I'm not even going to open your email. If you make me like click one extra thing, I'm not even going to open it. So he was just exasperated that he couldn't. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Well, maybe I'll just jump into yeah. it right now. But the email encryption, you know, there's a whole bunch of really good services out there. They're not expensive. Most of them, the most I've seen one cost is $15 per month for all you can eat. That's and not basically, bad. No, and it's not. And and so like the one, I have three different email encryptions just because I like that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the really uh, accessible ones is can be included with a Microsoft Office 365 subscription. So there's business, business essentials, business premium, and then there's E3 and there's E5. There's different bundles of services and software that you can get with various Office 365 bundles. If you get E3 or E5, you, you get by default included email encryption. 
and mm-hmm. it's ridiculously easy to use. And I don't have to make up a password. So if I send Joanne, if I send Joanne an email that's encrypted using that method, there's a little button at the bottom that says, like you get an email and you click on it, it says, well, this is encrypted. And then there's a button to say, send me a one-time passcode. You just click on that and it makes up a password and emails it to you. Hmm. And that's, that's beautiful. Like I didn't have to come up, you would think that'd be easy, but it's actually not. If I have to come up with passwords and mm-hmm. then somehow get it to the client, not using email and you know, they're going to forget it in five minutes and I'm going to forget it in five minutes. So I got to write that down and record it someplace. And then every time they open the email, they got to enter the password and it's just, it is annoying. Mm-hmm. But with this, I didn't have to make it up. I don't care what it is. I just want them to have to authenticate themselves. So that's so the difference between business premium, which is an Office 365 bundle, and E3 is only $7.50 a month per user. Wow. So, I mean, it, it, I, I looked at that and said, the email encryption alone is worth $7.50 a month, aside Absolutely. from all the other stuff that comes with it, and it's easy. And, but if you're, one, one piece of advice I would give people, if you're thinking about doing email encryption, I also have a share file has a really cool email encryption add-on that comes with depending on the package that you get with ShareFile, which is a way to share files or obtain files from other people using like a client portal. I have another one called Protected Trust. They all cost, you know, $10, $11, $12. But one of the things you should do if you're test driving, they all have free trials. So what we always encourage people to do is work with your client, call them up and say, hey, I'm going to, I'm testing out this new email encryption service. Pick like the least tech savvy person you can think of that you're going to, you know, that represents a demographic you're going to have to deal with on an ongoing basis and send them an email and be on the phone with them and go, okay, how, what does it look like? What do you think? Is this too hard? Is it okay? <laughs> and get some feedback because it needs to be easy on the sender and it needs to be easy on the recipient. That's a good idea. I prefer systems that do not in- require me to sign up for something and I don't want to disclose personal information. Like I don't want to have to create an account. So if it's possible for me, and so for example, the Office 365 message encryption, doesn't it require I sign up for anything or disclose anything? And I like that. Um, So there are certainly systems that will provide the benefits you're looking for and still be inexpensive, but you probably, since they all have free trials, you probably want to experiment. There's nothing wrong with that. You may as well test drive it before you buy it. So back to the idea of talking about clients up front, talking to clients up front about security. When do you want to use email encryption? Because they could, you know, even if your comment doesn't say they could ask you to do more than required by the rule. If somebody comes into my office and I'm a Michigan lawyer and says, I don't want any of my stuff on the interwebs. Okay. (laughs) Then I either have a choice of not representing them or, or representing them and protecting their data and not storing it. Like if I'm storing my data in, in the cloud then I would, I would want my engagement agreement to say that by signing this, you, you authorize that. And I might even include a disclaimer, you know, that it's impossible. It's encrypted in, in transit. It's encrypted at rest. But obviously, Internet security will probably be an oxymoron for the rest of our natural lives. I mean, there's, you can have all sorts of defenses up, and still sometimes hackers can get in or and more likely people make mistakes and, and let them in. But I would talk about that and how we going to how we going to communicate communication parameters up front. Is texting okay or not? Is cell phone okay or not? Is email okay or not? And if you're going to do email, you talk about the encryption issue. You talk about are you going to be super responsive to email? It, you know, if they want to get a hold of you right away, you know, what method of communication should you use? I mean, all that stuff has to do with security and electronics. 
but those are all things that need to be talked about today. And if you get a client, for example, I mean, based on the number of uh, advertisements I hear for these identity theft protection services, this must be rampant. I mean, <laughs> I would assume that yes. a lot of people have gotten their identities stolen based on the number of commercials I hear. So, so I, I want to know up front if my client has had, you know, if they've spent a lot of money rebuilding their credit score and, and they've been through the ringer because somebody stole their identity, they're going to be super sensitive to any of that stuff. I don't want to find out after the fact. That's the point. I want to know upfront. And if, if I got to do everything analog in a client and with a client, when my practice is primarily electronic and smooth and efficient, that's going to slow things down. And I want to talk about that with them. And it might also increase costs. And they, we should talk about that as well. Yes. Anyway. And then, you know, the basic thing is device encryption. So I want to make sure my phone, which probably already is encrypted, if I've got a tablet that has access to client data, it needs to have its encryption turned on, which of course that software is included with every tablet. And if you got a mobile uh, device like a laptop, that also needs to be encrypted. And if you've got Windows 8, 8.1 or 10 Pro, you already have BitLocker, which would allow you to encrypt the entire hard drive. And if you've got a Mac, you've got FileVault, which will allow you to encrypt the entire hard drive. So it just has to be turned on. A lot of times people call us and they're like, oh, my God, I have to get a new laptop. And I went to the computer <laughs> store and my head exploded and I saw all these options and the salespeople were confusing me. What do I look for? Well, if you're getting a new machine, a business machine, first of all, you want Windows Pro, not Windows Home. Uh, Pro provides all the security functionality in the operating system uh, and Home does not. But if, you're, if I'm looking for something, I would want to try to find something that complies with the Ultrabook configuration standard which is a, um, a laptop configuration promulgated by Intel who makes the chips but doesn't actually make the laptops. One of the criteria one must satisfy in order to be classified as an Ultrabook is hardware level security. So in other words, the security is built into the device. It's, it's not even necessarily relying upon a piece of software. And, and you would obviously want that. So like a biometric you know, fingerprint reader built into the deck uh, the new computer I just ordered has the the fingerprint readers built into the power button, and I can, uh, you know, you can have it scan all your fingerprints, and then the act of just turning on the power also logs you in, which is pretty handy. So it's not even a separate thing now on the device. And I, I would just, I, that's, I'm not going to get a home version of anything. There's, you know, there's two sides to the computer market. There's the home user and the business user, and the business users are going to be devices that are designed with more security in mind. I might think about recovery software for my laptop, which there's, you know, like load, load jack for laptops. There's a bunch of different programs that can be installed on computers, which cannot be uninstalled no matter what they do to the computer. And you could contact the service if your laptop was stolen and it can send out a homing beacon and they can triangulate its location and work with law enforcement to get your device back. Hmm. And I would absolutely like I have laptop privacy screens on all my laptops. I even have one on my phone because I'm always in an airplane and there's somebody sitting next to me. And if I don't have a privacy screen, they can read everything. And I'm doing email and other things I don't want them to see. So I think if you use your laptop in public, you absolutely have to have a privacy screen so that you can only see what's on the computer screen if you're sitting dead in front of the computer. And they make them for every size and every model. It's very easy to find. Uh, 3M, where the, they kind of pioneered that and now Belkin and other companies make them. But you can go to amazon.com or into any computer store and they make one to fit every single device. Some, they can be removable or they can just be attached with this 
fancy clear double back tape and you can't even see it once it's on. And the privacy screens now will work even with touch screens. So when they first came out, they would disable your, your touch screen functionality because the touch screen underneath the film couldn't, it didn't know you were touching it. But now that all <laughs> works fine. So you can put them on tablets, you can put them on phones, you can put them on laptops. Most lawyers today, uh, I find, are primarily relying upon a laptop. And pretty much everything they care about and need is on that laptop. So therefore, we, we try to make sure they've got a couple of different backup methods going on because you never want to have to rebuild a computer by reinstalling software from scratch. You'd like to put it all back the way it was before the crash. And so we like to have, we always advise, you know, two, like I'll just take myself for example. I've got a laptop and everything that is good and holy in the world to me is on that laptop. So I want to protect it. So I have two, I have an on-site and I have an off-site backup. My, on, my off-site is Carbonite. I pay like $72 a year, some ridiculous low amount. And that gives me unlimited gigabytes or terabytes of storage. I can use as much as I want. And it works in the background all the time without me even thinking about it. Just if it sees I made a new file, it backs it up. So it's, I don't have to run a backup or any of that stuff. And then I've got uh, uh, another program called Acronis, A-C-R-O-N-I-S, True Image, which I got off Amazon for 35 bucks. And it makes a mirror image of the entire hard drive in my computer to the external three terabyte drive that sits on my desk in my office. So I run that whenever I'm in the office, I just run a mirror image. So that's not as current as the Carbonite, which is happening all the, all the time. But so I spent like $89 for the three terabyte hard drive. I spent $35 for the software and I spend like $72 a year for Carbonite. So even though I have two backups um, going on simultaneously and hardly spending any money, and it's extraordinarily unlikely, knock on wood, that I would ever lose anything. So I feel like you shouldn't rely on just one, and particularly because they're so inexpensive and easy to use. We talked about this in the last podcast, but I, the policies, uh, you know, you got to have internet usage, social media, password, mobile security policies, and there's lots of sample ones you can find on the internet that you can uh, copy and paste and then, and then modify. And here's a, here's a really important one. Using a password manager, and I, I mean, I've read a ton of security uh, articles about, you know, what can the average person do to, you know, improve their security profile, and invariably, they talk about password managers. Now, when I, when I first got mine, I did it mostly as part of my estate plan, because in our family, I handle all the bills, I pay all the bills, I handle all the banking investments and all that stuff. My wife doesn't want to deal with that, and that's fine. But, you know, I'm definitely going to die before my wife does. If you met my wife, you'd know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I need to have, if the way it's going to play out, you know, she wouldn't know where anything was. I don't know how she could administer, administer my estate when she, didn't, she couldn't find anything. So I wanted some way of sharing with her all the account numbers and all the passwords and all the logons and everything. And it turns out, so the idea of a password manager is that you only have to know one password and that unlocks all the other passwords. Hmm. And so the, the concept is it's a vault. It's not stored on the internet. It's stored on your local device. And you enter that. You just have to remember one ridiculous. And in my case, I made a passphrase. So it's like 38 characters long. And I, it's like a, a sentence. And then I substituted certain symbols and numbers for some of the letters. And it's impossible to break. But I can actually remember it, even though I do have it written down in a couple of places and put in books. But they all have a way of sharing like I can say, I want to synchronize this with someone else's account. And so I, I encrypted her Kindle reader, which is basically an Android tablet. And I loaded the app and then you had this two-factor authentication. So I had to put in my login, my password, and then it said a code to my phone. I had to enter the code in my phone and then finally it unlocked. So now 
whenever I add a new password or something, um, like one of my credit card, I get my credit cards are stolen all the time because I buy so much stuff online, you know, it's, it happens. So I got a, I had to cancel a credit card and I got a new credit card to replace that. And it's already on her reader. Like I didn't have to say anything to her. I'm like, you know, Oh, by the way, uh, that card was canceled and the new one is already on your, on your Kindle reader. So it's awesome. The other things they do, they fill in all the blanks for you. So when I'm buying something on the internet, it'll show me all my credit cards and I can pick the one I want. And it fills in the expiration date and the security ID and the card number. It fills in my logins and my passwords. If I have two logins and passwords for a service, which I do on some services, it'll show me the alternatives and I can click whichever one I want. So it stores my IDs. So my Nexus global entry ID is in there. My passport is in there. My driver's license is in there. It tells me if, when they're going to expire. All my credit cards are in there, plus all the phone numbers I got to call if something goes wrong, all my logins and passwords. And it has this thing called secure notes where you can just put extraneous information that you sometimes need. So, for example, my daughter's social security numbers, I need, I need those occasionally. They're in there. Um, you know, license plate numbers for cars that I pay for. I, don't, I might need that once a year. That's in there. The router password for my home router. You know, it's not like I log into that thing, but I need to know what the password is. That kind of information. And if you think about all these little pieces of information that you need once a year, once a quarter, and you don't know where to put it, that's where you put it. That's the, you know, like my account number for national rental car, you know, that kind of stuff. You're like, <laughs> where do I even store that? You put it in the password manager. So we feel so strongly about that, that we rolled out a corporate password manager. So we use one called Dashlane, D-A-S-H-L-A-N-E. I'm not saying that's the best one. There's a ton of them out there that either won or came in second place in all the reviews I read. And I tried it and loved it so much. I never tried anything else. So that doesn't mean it's a good recommendation. It works for us. They have a business option as well. So I have two vaults. So I can say, show me my affinity consulting passwords. I show me my personal passwords and I can share, like we have a lot of, public resources here that other people need to know passwords to use and I can share it with whoever I elect to share it with. And then if an employee were to leave affinity, then their corporate side just disappears. They, they, that access goes away, but they can keep their personal. So I can just revoke all those passwords. They don't have any access to that anymore, um, but they can continue using it for their own personal thing. And, and so it has a, I should say this, it has a password generator. So the first thing it did when I installed it is it harvested all the passwords out of my browser, which was frightening how many <laughs> passwords were in there. And I like literally hundreds were in there. And if I had changed the password three times, I had all three of them. So anyway, it immediately calculates a security score. And Dashlane basically told me I was a pathetic loser because I was using the same <laughs> password for like 300 different logins. You know, you're not supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and you know, we scanned the dark web and we think this has been compromised and you need to start changing this right now. So I've been methodically, so they has this little password generator. I can say, I want 20 characters with a random mix of numbers, letters, and symbols and mixed case letters. And it cooks up some crazy thing you could never remember in a million years. And you just go copy and you paste. <laughs> That's all I do. So it, it comes up with some crazy password I can never think of. I copy and I paste and I make that my new password. And I've just kind of been knocking that out. And I got, I started out with like a 7% security score, which is really horrible. And now I'm up to 89. I'm still not there yet, but I'm getting there. And I feel so much better about all of that because I, I don't know any of my passwords. I never thought I'd be happy about not knowing any of my passwords, <laughs> but I only know one. And that's how, that's actually where you want to get to. So these are very inexpensive, couple of dollars a month, 
they all have free trials and you really need to think about doing that if you want to improve your passwords. If you can remember all your passwords, then they're probably weak unless you're a genius. <laughs> so, and then other few miscellaneous things. If you're going to use flash drives and external drives, guess what? They make encrypted versions of those. You can go on Amazon and find them. Email encryption service we talked about. Um, if you're going to use a file sync service like Dropbox, your files are encrypted in transit and they're encrypted at rest, but your Dropbox can get to your files. So if your data were... Uh, subpoenaed or seized by the government, they would be able to turn over readable data unless you added in a, an additional uh, security layer like there's a couple of them, SOOKASA, S-O-O-K-A-S-A, or Boxcryptor, B-O-X-C-R-Y-P-T-O-R, which those are services that encrypt your Dropbox or your Google Drive or your OneDrive data before it ever gets to their servers. So it's encrypted before they get it. So they cannot unlock your stuff. So the service works the same, but it's encrypted. The only thing you would give up in that case is you can no longer use Dropbox to share files with people external to your organization. And the reality is a lot of people have Dropbox for that exact reason. So, you know, again, security is annoying and you give up some abilities to share if you employ security. Or you could just say, look, I'm going to go to a completely different service like Tresorit, T-R-E-S-O-R-I-T.com which is a zero knowledge service that works just like Dropbox. They don't hold your decryption keys and they cannot. And the risk there is if you forget your password, no one can let you in. You can't call them and authenticate themselves yourself and have them let you in because they don't hold the password. Okay. But they do have services that work the same and you can, you can use things like that and there's no way anybody could ever get to your data except you. Um, the other, another easy thing you could do is to enable two-factor authentication Almost every good legal case management program offers it. Banking, banks all offer it. Um, you know, like Google offers it. Microsoft offers it if you've got a 365 account. And all that means is <clears throat> a login password isn't enough to get you in. They're going to send a code to your phone or something. Uh, and there's got to be this extra piece of information that you possess in order to get in. So it means it's going to take longer to get in, but it makes it way harder for somebody to hack in. Because if they get your password, that's not enough. And then, um, you know, maybe the last couple of things would be if I'm constantly connecting from, you know, to ad hoc wireless networks and I'm transmitting confidential data there, I would probably want to get a virtual private network service that would lock down my connection to an otherwise wide open internet connection, like at an airport or Starbucks or wherever you might be. Um, those are just called VPN services, that the acronym for virtual private network, and they're very inexpensive. And um, like one that I see is winning and winning and winning reviews is called Nord. I think their URL is nordvpn.com, probably. A couple of dollars a month. You go ahead and connect to the service or the internet connection, wherever you are, and then you just run that service. And it will lock down, basically give you a private connection to the public internet. And what I'm trying to protect against hmm. is a technology called packet sniffer software, uh, so that, that that even sounds bad, but it's it's perfectly legal, but it it would allow somebody sitting in the same Starbucks as you, connected to the same network as you, to intercept your wireless transmissions and read them. So a VPN prevents someone from doing that. So it's just an extra layer of protection. And interestingly, Dashlane, my password manager, added its own VPN. So uh, there's literally a little button in my Dashlane that I just click on, and it uh, locks down my connection. I already have 
another service that I I'm still I still have like several months on it. So I'm going to I'm, I'm kind of using both back and forth, but it works fine. And, and that's just another way to protect yourself. And then finally, you know, you might want to consider a digital signature service like Write Signature or DocuSign or something like that for securely uh, uh, executing documents yourself and having clients and others execute documents. And those all have free trials and are very inexpensive and make sure that, you know, they authenticate uh, in a way that wet signatures can never be authenticated. And then finally, learning about um, metadata. If you're in the business of trading documents electronically with other uh, hostile parties like opposing counsel, understanding the electronic files you're trading can contain information beyond the text that you intended to disclose. Um, and all that hidden information is called metadata. And, uh, you know, like Word has a way of taking that out and Acrobat has a way of taking that out. Or you can buy third-party programs to do that. Um, but, you you know, your files also matter and you want to make sure you're not disclosing anything you didn't intend to disclose. But all those things we talked about, you're talking like five bucks, ten dollars, seven dollars a month. None of that stuff is expensive. Turning on two-factor authentication doesn't cost anything in any of the services. I've never seen that cost a penny more. Password managers, a couple of dollars a month. You're uh, encrypting your phone and your tablet and your laptop is very likely a, a free proposition. Privacy screens, 40 bucks, you know, none of this stuff is really expensive. And I think if you did all these things, you would clearly be in the safe harbor of having used reasonable precautions to protect client data. Um, you don't need to hire a super expensive consultant to do all that stuff. And you can really test out these things before you buy because almost everything I mentioned has a free trial. Wonderful information, Baron, as usual. Well, it looks like we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank our guest today, Baron Henley, for a wonderful program. Baron, if our guests would like to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Just shoot me an email at B as in boy, Henley, H-E-N-L-E-Y, at affinityconsulting.com, A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y, consulting.com. Thank you, Baron. This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance Podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.